Welcome to part two of my chat with Anthony Raimondo. You can hear this chat commercial free, which I dropped as an early release on the Deep Dives with Monica Perez feed on your favorite podcasting platform. It's the November 2nd, 2022 episode. And if you already heard this over there, then you can go over there now to Deep Dives with Monica Perez and find an exclusive new episode of Chewing the Fat with Fat Mitch. So there's a little something of a bonus over there. But if you haven't heard this yet, it's a bonus in itself because Anthony, as you may recall from part one, is a bold and courageous lawyer in Fresno, California, who championed small businesses who resisted illegal lockdown policies. And he more recently defended some who were persecuted for not getting the jab. But he has got stories from all walks of life from unions to immigration to if you heard part one his experience in croatia after the war so please enjoy part two of my conversation with anthony raymondo welcome to part two of my chat with anthony raymondo Anthony is a bold and courageous lawyer in Fresno, California, who championed small businesses resisting illegal lockdown policies and more recently defended those persecuted for not getting the jab. But his story starts way before that and it goes into many little nooks and crannies. He knows the inside scoop about so, so much and he is not afraid to dish. So I hope this is one of many conversations I have with Anthony and I do hope you enjoy this second part of our conversation. So um, my daughter's interested. She doesn't know whether she wants to like defend rape victims by being a prosecutor or defend guys who are arrested for, you know, pot in some place like Texas. You know, she doesn't know whether she wants to be a public defender or prosecutor or whatever. And uh, I just, when I heard you talking about being a public defender, it sounds like that also is not what you see as what you get, that they're not really there to defend the public, but rather to you know, I don't know what shape, exploit, manipulate. Is it incompetence? Tell us a little bit about your experience with that as an insider. I was a public defender for uh, a couple of years. Um, and it's what, it's actually what I went to law school to do. Like, so I was somewhat idealistic as a young man. And I think I, you know, I can say I came from a pretty, I think sort of left-wing progressive point of view as a young person, you know, you grew up in Los Angeles and you know, I went to a, a liberal arts college, and so it's sort of you know what you get indoctrinated into. But I didn't like the police, and I didn't like authority, and I didn't like the government. And so I thought, what I want to do is defend people that they're trying to put in a cage. Um, and so I went to law school really with the idea that I wanted to be a public defender. That's what I wanted. I did an internship at a, a pros- at the prosecutor's office in Long Beach. And I really kind of liked the environment of being around the courthouse all the time. So, but I didn't want to be a prosecutor because I didn't want to put people in jail. So I had this idea that I wanted to be a public defender, which is what I moved to Fresno because it was the one place that would hire me to do that. So I got a job down here um, as a public defender. And I originally worked for a law firm that was uh, on contract with the county to handle cases that were uh, conflict of interest for the public defender's office. So like when there's a, a multi-defendant case that creates a conflict of interest because the public, you know, defendants want to point the finger at each other. So, if you know 
Many people who are in the criminal justice system, when you work in that system, you learn very quickly that once that system touches you, it tends to touch you again and again and again and again and again. So, you know, a person who was a witness or a victim in one case becomes a defendant in another case. So there's lots and lots of conflicts of interest. Um, so I handled those kind of cases through this, this a private firm that was under contract with the county. And then I wasn't even there very long, maybe six months, less, maybe five months. And uh, I got poached by the regular public defender to go work for the county. Uh, and, you know, they, they just approached me in the hallway of the courthouse and were like, hey, we want you to come work for us. And to give you an idea, I made $34,000 a year in my first job as a lawyer um, for that contract firm. And I was so excited that the public defender offered me $35,800 with no benefits. <laughs> no benefits? No with benefits. The government? That was, yeah. Well, that was the way they did is that. It, for young people that wanted to kind of get into that county system, they would dangle that promise of, you know, we're going to give you benefits down the road. And they first promised me three months and then that became six months. And then it kept getting farther out. And then when well, I found I'm proud of them for actually giving you a market, a market rate. Well, oh, when, hey, they finally, when, I finally, when they finally gave me the benefits, I had my wife and we'd had our, our, our first, our older son at that point, I couldn't afford to pay the deduction for the healthcare benefits that they were taking which is one of, the, one of the things that led me to leave. But more what led me to leave was I became very disillusioned with what, with what I thought I was doing there. But I mean, the, answer, the easy answer is that what I would tell your daughter is, number one, there is some benefit to it. There is, there is no better place to learn how to be a, a trial lawyer or how to be in the courtroom than being a public defender because everything's tilted against you, right? I mean, the DA doesn't file on cases that they don't think they're going to win. and you know, for lack of a better way to put it, like everything's stacked against you, right? The jury thinks your client's a criminal. The prosecutor thinks your client's a criminal. The judge thinks your client's a criminal. Your facts and evidence tend to be bad. So, you know, it teaches you things that you can't learn oh, see, anywhere I, else. I thought the prosecutor would teach you how it works so that you could later be a defense attorney. And no, they have an easy job. They don't have to go on things that aren't any right. good. Interesting. In my okay. first jury trial was a DUI case where our defense was everything the cop says is a lie. That's not a great case. Yeah, but it could have been true, though. Uh, in this was case, it true? Well, I mean, it could have been true. In this case, it wasn't. But um, <laughs> I mean, I can tell you, I could go on at length on you know the, the challenges of being a public defender. But it's a it's an unbelievably difficult job from a lawyer's perspective. Because remember, your client also doesn't trust you. I mean, that you, get, you, that you get appointed to represent somebody as a public defender, and they're like, oh, man, I want a real lawyer. I don't want you. You're some dump truck for the government. Like, I don't need you. And, and were most of them? I mean, you obviously, because of your experience, because actually you didn't answer my question, probably because I didn't get, I can give you a chance to earlier, of like why other lawyers looked askance at you when you were helping defend small businesses against lockdown. So it makes me think that your approach um, maybe has more integrity or is just from a different point of view? And was, did you find the same thing with the public defenders, that you were the only like, guy really trying to do the good job? I think like anything else, courage is a rare commodity. That's why it's valuable. And what I've learned in practicing law is that most lawyers are cowardly people, right? They like the paycheck. They like the money. They work for the approval of the institution that they're in. But I don't I haven't seen, and, and again, there's of course exceptions, but I haven't seen a lot of courage in the in the profession. I think that, and I think that's just indicative of how human beings are. That you know, people are generally frightened, and they're generally they're generally not courageous. 
And so lawyers are no different. They're no exception. And most lawyers, and if anything, lawyers are more dialed into the societal approval because they have a certain amount of standing in society, right? Why didn't doctors stand up, right? Because doctors are already getting the approval of the society. And they well, they had their livelihoods. They're all connected to hospitals. Right. Well, all of it. But also, I don't think you can underestimate the value of status yeah. for people. No, I agree with you. And yeah. Professions like doctors and lawyers have a certain amount of status. Yeah. Now, I never cared about that. I've never been one of those people like my identity is a lawyer. and I don't play golf. I don't hang out at the country club. I don't really socialize with other lawyers. Um, I, I'm not terribly impressed with the idea of being a lawyer. I like what I can do with it to help people. And I like right. solving problems for my clients and being useful. But I'm not in love with the idea of being of being an attorney, but you, I'm sure you've seen this. There's plenty of people that are like, oh, I'm a lawyer, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. And so, yeah. why would you risk that? And so, in the public defender environment, I saw two types of people. There were people that I really admired, who truly were passionate about defending the court. Well, I'm going to say three types. So, one is the category of people that are truly doing it for the right reasons. They want to help those people. They want to hold the government to account. They want to make that prosecutor do their job. Okay. The second category is there are people who love doing trials. Doing a jury trial is like being an actor. It's a performance. You're on stage in that courtroom. And just like there are people who love being like stand-up comedians or actors because they get off on that whole performance element of it. I mean, there are, there are lawyers who just love that. Like, you know, one of my colleagues was a guy who was like that. He just loved doing trials. He was going to trial all the time and it was never any big deal to him. It'd be like, Hey, what happened in your trial? Oh, client got 150 years for child molestation. What about lunch? Like, you know, because it was just about the performance. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Where well, actually, it's probably the best way to actually, if you have to do it, because I would be racked with anxiety night and well, that's day. that's what happened to me. It's like, especially like the yeah. stuff that involved kids, I couldn't handle at all. Right. Like stuff that were like yeah, someone cautioned me, say, tell your daughter, don't do the sex crimes. It's, and well, you don't always get control over that either. Like, you know, that stuff really weighed on me. And like, not being able to help people wait on you. And yeah. a lot of what you're doing as a public defender, you have to accept is you are processing people through the system. Yeah. And I know I have friends who, if they see this, are going to be really angry at me for saying this. But uh -huh. there are people that I work with who truly, I believe, had integrity and had good intentions. But your paycheck still comes from the government. Yeah. And you will cooperate with what the county wants you to do. And a lot of what you do as a public defender is make sure that the system continues to operate because the public defender is the person in the courthouse more than anybody else who has control over the calendar and how the system works, that the system, that the wheels continue to turn. If every public defender in every courthouse in America walked in to work every day, told every single client to plead not guilty. Yes. And to, and to refuse to waive their right to a jury trial, yes. a trial, the entire system would collapse. Right. And that, I've said this many times. I'm like, and I was just about to ask you this question. Uh, I've, I've said, you know, I'm a libertarian and I really want to say that everyone has the right to do anything they want. Basically, when even alienate, like your rights aren't even inalienable. You can alienate your own rights if you want to. But I feel like with plea bargains, if only plea bargains weren't even an option, that not only would the system, it wouldn't, the system would necessarily have to collapse, although I realize it would grind to a halt, but you would simply have to eliminate all the laws 
that were nonsense because actual, if you eliminate like the drug laws and all those kinds of drugs, and I'm not saying that the things, a lot of people doing drugs or prostitution, gambling, like those things are bad for your soul for sure. But if, but if you eliminated those things from the system, there would be so little actual real crime against people and property that- Gambling is not a very effective tool for healing the soul. What is? You said those things are bad for your soul. The government is not a very effective yes. tool for healing your soul. Right, because they don't love you. Right. They it's don't not, love you. They hate what, it's you. It's not what they're good at. <laughs> right. So, so I'm just saying, and you know, jail is no way to help that either. So no. if I, I wonder, I just want to know, like when I say I really don't even think public plea bargain should be an option because it's like, a, it's a moral hazard. And then if you eliminated that, you would really be stuck with the only things the system could handle as far as like trials and jail and fi even fines maybe is crimes against persons and property, which would be minimal in a prosperous society without a lot of mala prohibita laws. But even more than the plea bargain part of it, it's the time waiver that nobody thinks about because nobody knows about it. Your most powerful tool as a criminal defendant is your right to a speedy trial. They have to bring you to trial within those time frames, or you go free. They have to drop the case. They don't have enough courtrooms. They don't have enough jurors. If you're a public defender, and I would challenge any public defender that's watching this, convince your colleagues for a month to refuse to enter time waivers for your clients. The amount of pressure that you're under as a, as a public defender to convince your client they're called time waivers, waiving times, waiving yeah. your right to a speedy trial. And you go to your client, oh, well, you know, we need you to waive time because I need some time to investigate this. They're giving up their most powerful constitutional right, which is telling the government, by this date, you better have a jury in panel. Wow, that's genius. But I, and I, we can't get into the story because I have a few more things I want to hit, but I know that you had figured a way around getting people their licenses back that had been stale. And as soon as you really cracked the code, they changed the rules so that you could not actually help people. Yeah, we were getting people their driver's licenses back. And um, the thumbnail version of it is um, I got a visit. Well, the judges got a visit from our supervisor at the public defender's office, and they told the judges, you can't do what you're doing for these people. Don't let our attorneys do what they're doing. And I was just devastated by this because I'm like, wait, who are we working for? And there was my, yes. right? We're not, I didn't sign up to be a collection agent for the county of Fresno on traffic violations. Right. I signed up to, to advocate for people. Yeah, to get their I'm, licenses. I'm, yes. about, you know, it's not sexy and it's not adventurous and they don't make movies about it, but you transform someone's life. If they think they can't ever get a driver's license again, and you get them their driver's license back, yeah. you have just changed that person. It's so life. regressive. Traffic fines and stuff, like uh, insurance, like all that oh, stuff. Horrendous. The only, when we, I grew up pretty poor. I was the youngest of nine. And, you know, it was just, people were devastated by stuff like that. P people wouldn't have insurance because it would, would get too expensive. And, and um, I know a lot of immigrants job. now who have these problems. It's just devastating. And then they get ripped off by their lawyers because they would never trust a public defender. What about the jury nullification thing? Is that just hopeless? To, to say to people, hey, like, even if you find the facts, if you disagree with the law, you don't you can let my guy go. Like, you can't say that. Is that just something not to even think about? Well, my understanding is that um, you're not really allowed to do that. You right. Can. Nobody's going to really. I mean, but you're going to draw an objection from the prosecutor. Right. Um, and the judge is going to admonish you and admonish the jury about that. Right. Um, I never tried that. You know. Jury trials really 
especially when you've got a bad case or about trying to convince one person. You know, and you get very, there's a lot of gallows humor about being a public defender. We're like, man, I just need that one dumb person on the jury who's going to say no. Um, I mean, I, that case I told you about where our defense was, everything the cop said was a lie. Yes. My, my client was the one who was lying, but, you know, he had to take the stand to tell his story because he's the only one who can tell that story. And right. he, just, he destroyed himself on the witness stand. Of course, right? Isn't that and, the you know, clean I, I, I went and talked to the jurors afterwards and they're like, you know, you're a really good lawyer, but like, you know that he wasn't telling the truth, that he was guilty, right? We had to vote. And I'm like, it's okay, you guys, don't worry about it. <laughs> but, um, in that case, that was right around the time that we were seeing police officers down in LA going to prison over the Rampart scandal. Right. So I stood up in my closing argument in that case, okay. and I walked over at the council table. The DA had the, the arresting officer at the table with him. And I stood right behind this police officer. And I told the jury, I said, two weeks ago in Los Angeles, a police officer being sentenced on a felony apologized to the court for all of the jurors who had believed his perjured testimony. You cannot believe these men just because they wear a uniform. And this guy's looking up at me like this, like he wanted to just tear my head off. Oh my gosh. So I would do stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, I never referred to the prosecutor as the representative of the people because they're not. Like that always offended me. Right. I would tell jurors, I always refer to the prosecution as the government. Nice. They're always the government. So why did they try to take your license away? And are they are they going to succeed? So there's a little bit of a backstory to this. So um, as you know, as I mentioned, I've been representing you know family farms and such for for a long time here in California. And there is what in this country what is called what I call the poverty industrial complex, which is nonprofits and various other organizations funded by government and private money. The NGOs. It's off of the human rights. Like industry. domestic NGOs, basically. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's terrible. You know, everything from, you know, no transparency. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a whole corrupt system that goes on. Well, I started to deal with an organization called California Rural Legal Assistance, CRLA, which is a long standing and very politically connected nonprofit law firm. They are connected at the federal level and they are deeply enmeshed in state politics in California. They're an institution here. And they receive about 65% of their funding from the Federal Legal Services Corporation, which is a federal agency that administers legal aid funds. So you apply for grants. If you're a legal aid provider, you're a nonprofit, you apply for these federal grants and they give you federal grants based on your mission. Well, one of the, the rules that applies to those grants is that those grants cannot be used to represent a person who is not legally present in the United States nor can they be used to represent an alien who is not physically present in the United States, except that there's a couple of very- Wait, what's the difference between what you just said? Somebody who's legally here, but has gone home. Okay. They were legally here, or maybe they have the right to be here, but right. they've okay, gone got home it. for whatever got reason. It. And I learned in 2006, because it was somewhat publicized in the world that I operated, uh, when Devin Nunes was in the House of Representatives, he was on the Judicial Committee, and he spearheaded an investigation of CRLA hmm. in which there was a report from the Inspector General to Congress that, that, that CRLA was regularly and habitually violating, intentionally violating this rule. Well, you have to understand the world that I operate in, and again, I probably annoy some people that I'm saying this, but you're talking 90 plus percent of farm workers in California are undocumented. Okay, they're all on payrolls. We have I-9s on all of them. Aren't they? to kind of do that a little bit? 
Isn't that, uh, don't they have different rules for farm workers? No? No, there's a visa program for seasonal farm workers called the H-2A program. Right. Which is for seasonal farm workers okay. where it's a whole bureaucratic thing in and of itself. But okay. uh, if let's say you're a grape grower. You can bring workers from Mexico for your season through a right. immigration H-2A. process that gives them a temporary visa to come and harvest. Okay. That's a growing but small part of the, the farm worker population in California. But back at the time that this was going on, very little H-2A labor in California. All of our domestic farm labor in California, like I said, 90 plus percent are are undocumented. They all have permanent resident alien cards, which is what you call, you think of as a green card colloquially, but they're fake. I mean, you can buy, (laughs) I'll tell you a story. I teach (laughs) for farm labor contractors. They have to have a license and they have to take these ongoing classes like MCLE for lawyers. So I teach those classes through a local city college here. And I was teaching a class a few years ago. And I told them, I said, you know, you can get a permanent resident alien card off the street in San Francisco in 15 minutes for $80. And somebody in the back of the room yells out, it's only 60. <laughs> so they How much is a max card? We have I-9s on all of them. We're taking <laughs> taxes out of their checks. They're getting paid minimum wage. I mean, I've spent my whole career defending farmers against wage claims from undocumented farm workers. Okay, so this whole idea that farm that farm workers are working off the books for cash for less than minimum wage—that's not reality. But but they're being undocumented. Is. But, but they're being undocumented is reality. So that's all on them, right? If they come in with a fake green card, your guy. Yeah, what you, is you, your guy? You have your I nine. You do that process correctly. The employer doesn't get penalized for that. You can get audited. And they'll check those documents. And if the document's not valid, they'll give you a list back saying, hey, you can't employ this person anymore. But if you did the, the I-9 verification process correctly, um, you don't get penalized. You is that I, E-Verify? I do a whole with you on, on, is that E-Verify? No, E-Verify is a, is a voluntary system that actually checks those documents through a computer. You're not required to do E-Verify. No farmers in California are doing E-Verify. And if they are, they're doing it for publicity purposes, right. and then they're using a labor contractor who's not E-verified to fill in their labor. Right. Okay. Um, so anyway, um, you know, we could go on the immigration thing for a yeah. long time. No, we can't do that, but we could do um, it another time. I'm happy to do that. But um, so anyway, what happened was I'm like, well, wait a minute. These guys are coming after my clients, accusing my clients of doing all these illegal things, most of which were wage cases, by the way. How come they get to get away with breaking the law? And my clients don't. And it actually started with a case where one of CRLA's clients broke into my client's house in the middle of a lawsuit and tried to shoot my client. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, my, my, my client called. I actually got into the case late. He had another lawyer he was unhappy with, and he'd heard that I was good. So he hired me to replace his other lawyer. And I'd, I'd gotten the file on like a Thursday. And I get this call from him on Saturday. He's frantic. And he's like, the guy just tried to kill me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, the guy, he was here in my house oh my and he had a gun. And I'm like. I'm like, oh my God, are you okay? He goes, yeah, I have a gun too. Nice. And my client actually chased these guys out of his house with a gun. See, and did no. he report that to the statistics bureau? Because that is a that is a life saved by a personal His gun. life was absolutely saved by his firearm. I went to his house on the ranch and I saw, they fired a shot at him as they were fleeing. And wow. I saw the bullet hole about 20 feet up on the side of his house what in the, the wall. What the f- and I said, how did you know it was him? And he goes, he was wearing the same ugly shirt that he was wearing at his deposition. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> well, this was 2008, 
somewhere in there, like this was right after the financial collapse. And this is a rural, a, a rural area. And we reported it to the sheriff and the sheriff was like, yeah, that'll go on the stack. Like we have no money. Uh, our funding is just dried up. And, you know, if we run across the guy in like a traffic stop, we'll arrest him, but we're not going to go look for him. You know, but the federal government gets, you know, 37% of a person's, you know, income. And right. it's the local level where they're actually doing the things that right. you so they did done. nothing. The local law enforcement did nothing. And then I tried to get a restraining order. I filed for a restraining order against him and his his attorneys would not give me his address so that I could have him served, which is something we're entitled to in discovery. And California has form interrogatories. And one of the that, that you have to answer, they're like sort of usually the initial part of discovery and litigation. And I went back to the file from the previous lawyer and they had refused to turn over the address, which they can't do. And he had never pushed the issue. So I pushed the issue in court, even though the time to push the issue had passed. And the judge told them, look, this is very serious. You either need to make arrangements to have this restraining order served or you need to uh, give the address to the lawyer. So they, they agreed to have, let me have a process server meet them at their law office where I could personally serve this guy with the restraining order. In the meantime, I'm freaking out because I'm like, this guy's going to kill my client. Right. Like, this is serious. So I called a lady who I knew who's an auditor from ICE. She does the I-9 audits, those paperwork audits that I yes. mentioned. This is not a person who has any law enforcement authority. She's an auditor. But she has access to all the databases. So I said, hey, look, I have this problem. I have deal with these lawyers that represent undocumented people all the time. They're doing it in violation of the federal laws that govern their funding. And I'm sick of it. If I give you information on their clients, will you verify for me that they're undocumented so I can report the lawyers to the people that oversee their funding? Because remember, there's an active federal investigation at this time of this exact issue. And she said, sure, no problem, anytime you want. And I said, great. So I sent her over this guy's <laughs> Nice. Well, I get a call from a guy from ERO, which is Enforcement and Removal Operations. This is the police side of ICE. And he says, hey, you gave so-and-so this guy's name. He popped up as red flag in our system. And he's a validated gang member. He has weapons convictions. We want this guy. So you had feds because the yeah. feds have the money. <laughs> he, they said, we want this guy and we want you to help us. Wow. But remember, I'm convinced this guy's going to kill my client. So I'm like, okay, what do you need? Dude, are you, I guess it's long ago enough that you're not worried about retribution. No, I mean, he doesn't know who I am. I mean, and I'm oh, just, I'm worried right. about my client, honestly. I'm just worried okay. about my client. All right, but this was when? 2008. This is 2008. So this all is right, during Obama. You know, this is before all the friends about immigration with Trump. Yeah. This is when Obama's deporting people left and right. Remember? Right, right. Yeah, I remember. You don't understand how immigration works. Like, yeah. they don't just snatch people off the street, throw a bag over their head, and they send you to Mexico. Like, that's Are you not familiar with the Kate Steinle, the entire Kate Steinle case? Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, because that guy was yeah totally have, set up. We have to talk about that sometime. You must. Throughout, my, throughout my whole career, they have published priorities that their priorities are to arrest people generally who have criminal criminal backgrounds. And if you're, this is what the public doesn't know. If you're, if you come here illegally, and say you've been here for a long time, and you have kids here, you say you marry an American, you've been here for like you're establishing your community. If you get picked up by ICE or you get their attention. First of all, they don't throw you in jail. They don't have enough facilities to throw you in jail. What they do is they give you a notice to appear before an immigration judge, and they ask you to voluntarily appear in court. 
And if you have, if you've been clean and you've been working and you've not gotten in trouble and you have kids here and you have ties to your community, there's a defense to deportation called um, uh, cancellation of removal. And they do it all the time, all the time. And especially during Obama, if you were somebody like it's in the San Francisco immigration court, which is where this, these guys would have gone, you were better off turning yourself into ICE if you had a clean record like that. Because you could get cancellation of removal very easily. Because this again, it's this overburdened system. It's like plea bargains, right? Cooperate right. with us and you don't go to jail. Cooperate with us. If you haven't gotten any trouble in the United States, we'll cancel your removal and give you Okay, but this guy they wanted. But this guy they wanted. So I told them that I had this arrangement to get the restraining order. And the, the officer said, well, I want to be the guy who serves that restraining order because I'm going to give him the papers and I'm going to slap cuffs on him. Nice. I said, okay, well, I'll give you. And I gave him the Great. paper. The like, day before he calls me and he goes, I can't do it. I got called off on a homicide and I can't do it. And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I guess that's what you do. And I got, can't a somebody else do it? No, they let it go. And I, and I, uh, I got a process, that's a regular ridiculous. process server and I served him with the restraining order. And then the attorney sets my client's wife's deposition. Okay. And I said, well, and, and, She's, and she tells me she's going to bring him to the deposition. I'm like, we have a restraining order against him. Because nice. at this point, it's a temporary restraining order, not a permanent restraining order. I'm like, he can't go. And she's like, well, his right to participate in his lawsuit trumps your restraining order. And I've got emails back and forth. I'm like, don't bring him. She insists on bringing him. Well, what she didn't know is that before she noticed that deposition, the ICE agent had called me and said, tell me where he's going to be. <laughs> Oh my so God. they knew he was going to be at this deposition. And I'm telling her, don't bring him to the deposition. Right. And they brought him anyway. And ICE was staked out outside. The deposition took like less than 10 minutes because my, my client's wife had spousal immunity. So she just refused to testify. Right. And then I walked into the next conference room at this court reporter's office. I picked up my cell phone and I told ICE, he's on his way out. Here's what he's wearing. He walked outside. They followed him some distance away and they arrested him on the on-ramp for the freeway. My wow. client calls me and he's like, I just drove by. They're arresting him. He's no like, way. Crying. He was like literally crying. This big, tough farmer is like crying on the phone because wow. he was terrified that he or one of his family members was going to get killed. Right. And he's like, he's like, they got him. Thank you. And what happened to that guy? I don't know. From what I heard, he came. He was back in America within about 10 days. He just crossed and he never came after you. And uh, he never came after. I think that he just wanted nothing more of it at that point. Good. And then um, I had reported the lawyers to the federal agency, so they had to withdraw from the case. They had private co-counsel on the case, so somebody who wasn't a legal aid person was helping them with the case. Those people continued with the case. And who they pays settled. them? Who pays private They're, they're going to take a piece of any settlement or judgment. Okay, okay. It's a contingency fee. But they settled the case because they couldn't find him. He wasn't talking to them. They tried right. to bluff me on that. So, so how did this relate to your problems with your license? So fast forward, after that, every time I had a case with these people, I would send their information over to ICE. Now, we never had a situation like that again where the guy was a criminal. Because the other thing is that most of these farm workers are not criminals. Most of them are just people here working. They're just regular people. Right. So they were never interested in anybody else. And I wanted to stay at her good side. Because remember, I'm handling cases with her where she's investigating my clients. So I would send her an email saying, hey, here's the latest case that I have with these guys. Can you verify whether this guy has his status? And by the way, if there is a problem with this guy, I will cooperate. Like I'm trying to stay on her good side. Right. 
Um, and they start getting thrown off of all these cases as I'm reporting them to the federal agency that oversees their funding. Eventually, I get a call from a lawyer from the inspector general's office. And he's like, hey, I'm the guy in charge of investigating them. You, you should have called me first. And I'm like, well, I didn't know who you were. I was right. reporting them through your website. But he's like, well, start sending those to me. And I'm like, OK, I can do that. And I worked with him. I tried. I had a lady who was going to be an informant for him who was within inside that organization. And it was a whole thing that was going on. And um, there, there were some other cases where legal status was a defense to the claim that was brought um, under some U.S. Supreme Court precedent. So there were a few other cases where I, I did these type of investigations to verify somebody's status because it was relevant to the case. But anyway, eventually, um, the California in 2013, the state of California passed a law that forbade lawyers from inquiring about immigration status of a litigant with ICE. And they would take your license for it if you did it. But so even stopped. if it was totally relevant to the case, like it was Doesn't for matter. you? It's, it's on the books now in California. You cannot talk to ICE about an opposing party. So when I saw that that thing was going to pass, like three or four months before it got signed by the governor, I stopped all this and I didn't do anything anymore. So fast forward ahead, I did a big pro bono case for a group of farm workers against Cesar Chavez's United Farm Workers Union where I represented these farm workers for free for five years because they wanted to vote on whether or not to be represented by the union. And the union and the state of California just wanted to force the union on them. And uh, we successfully forced the election and we won the court battle. The state originally held the election and then locked the ballots in the safe and refused to count them. And then we fought the court battle to get those ballots counted. I have to ask you a question. Why would the state of California want to force the union just because they like tell me about the relationship like it's obviously there's corruption there like is the union working for the workers like the people who run the union like how do they get paid off why does the governor want the union well, to the be UFW, there the ufw the united farm workers union is different from any other union so what i'm about to say pertains to the ufw not necessarily to other unions the ufw is really a political entity they are, they can't organize any workers. They, they don't organize workers anymore. Um, in the last 10 years, they've been decertified, which means voted out more times than they've been voted in. And in the last five years, they haven't even organized anybody. They're a political entity more than they are a, a true labor union. So they don't care about the workers at all, but they make money from dues money of those workers' wages. And they get political status by being a farm worker union, and they're deeply embedded in Sacramento. I mean, you know, you've been in California for a while. Cesar Chavez is an icon here. I mean, he's been dead since the '90s. But yeah, I lived in California before, and yes, for always. His his family members are the ones that are running that union now. His family members, and they're all making money off the brand. Of course, they're part of that poverty industrial complex. Yes, definitely, incredibly powerful political brand. So, like, my farm workers were in Hillary Clinton's emails when the emails got leaked. Um, the UFW was going to Hillary Clinton to ask for help with this whole situation. Um, so, anyway, we won the court battle and we forced the votes to be counted. And when the votes were counted, like, over 85% of these workers voted against the union and the union was thrown out. If they Why? Why did the workers not want the union? Because they don't want money being taken out of their check. That's it, right? They didn't want money being taken out of their check. They were angry that people were trying to force this on them. 
And they were working at a farm that's the highest paying farm in this region already. So they're I mean, like, teachers I've known who have been forced to be in a union, basically, uh, anytime any they've had issues, it's in my observation the my friend in the union was screwed by the union. Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole show on unions yeah. generally and like yes. how all that works because I do a lot of that kind of work. But yeah, I this like specific to. situation is somewhat unique because of the corruption of the UFW and how politically enmeshed they are. I mean, they go back with Jerry Brown to the 70s, who was governor during right. that time. And so he had appointed um and he was uh, governor again. Right. This is the second time he was governor. Right. Uh, was when all this happened. And he had done a whole house cleaning at the Agricultural Labor Agency and put all these people who were pro-UFW in into place there. And so they had rigged this whole thing against these workers and then refused to count their votes. And the Court of Appeals said that it was a civil rights violation for the state to conduct a secret ballot election and then refuse to count the votes. <laughs> right. Well, of course, they counted the votes or they knew how they would come out. And they hadn't destroyed. There wasn't like a fire like in Bosnia. They had not destroyed. No, the we were worried the whole time. And the workers kept telling yeah. me, how do we know they still have them? I'm like, I don't right. know, but we're going to keep fighting and see if they do. Yeah. Right. And, fortunately they did. and actually, I don't think they ever counted them. They were sealed in our presence and we signed across the seal. And yeah. those envelopes were still intact when they finally counted the votes. Oh, wow. The reason they fought so hard is because they, they knew, knew. I mean, everyone knew. knew how this was going to go. Like, yeah. the union right. knew they had no support there. I mean, right. our workers, like, did protests and all kinds. Of, it was actually amazing. That's so uncool to just want to steal people's money like that. Like, that's and just awful. It would have doubled the union's revenue. Wow, Really? It would have doubled their revenue if they had won this election. But what, you know, are there two kinds of people like scum and good people? Like really, in your experience, it's just like some people will steal and some people don't. Yeah, like, I think it's that. So, I mean, some people are, have no compunctions <laughs> about stealing and other people, you know, want to be honest. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I, I mean, don't have it's any just, other, I don't have an explanation for why. Simple as that. You know, moral temptation is a reality for, for everyone. Right. And I know you're, you're a religious person, right? We all have to. Well, struggle. I'm a practicing Catholic, but I definitely struggle with like, is does God know my name? Like, am I going right. to die and, and go to heaven? Know, so I, I don't call myself religious, but I definitely get why it's important to have a, a moral framework that has repercussions built in. And, and we all struggle with we all struggle with moral decisions that we're confronted with daily. I mean, if yes. you're living life, if you're not struggling with those things, then I guess you're one of those people that steals without compunction. Yes, right. right. But, and, I worry about like thinking bad things about people. Like I really so like daily, I'm just like that guy's a jerk. I'm like, ah, oh, that's bad, right? But if he is a jerk, right. sounds like these guys are jerks. <laughs> At any rate, we cost the union this massive opportunity by winning this case. Wow. So they filed. So in the meantime, CRLA, this legal aid entity, in 20, either it was 2013 or 2014, they filed a lawsuit against me personally in federal court, claiming that I was retaliating against farm workers for asserting their rights in court by trying to have them deported. That case was picked up by my the law firm I was with at the time by our insurance company, and we mounted an aggressive defense. The case was dismissed twice at the trial court for not stating a claim, for failing to state a claim against me. That was appealed to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit heard my case. It was like within two weeks of hearing uh, one of Trump's immigration cases where he had been railing against them in court. So they were really riled up on immigration. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they called me a, a mafioso and a serial killer in the opinion. Were they stereotyping your Italian heritage? I kind of thought so, but I was, <laughs> I was, I was like, okay, so, so, 
You guys, you guys can call an Italian lawyer a mafioso, huh? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so um, the Ninth Circuit reversed the dismissal of the case and remanded it um, and said it, it is a lawsuit and it can go forward. Now, no discovery was done. It was never litigated. It was a, a Rule 12 motion in federal court, which means they take the allegations in the complaint as true and say, it, does this lawsuit, does this complaint state a claim if all of this is true? Right. So there were no facts, no real facts. And right. I never got to present a defense other than if this is true, it's not a case. Right. And then the uh, insurance company had spent a lot of money on it and they won't. And I had gotten some really bad press out of it. And, um, you know, you're, it's not your, really your dream as a lawyer to have your name on a published appellate case where you're the defendant. You know, I mean, and where the court's calling you a mafioso, like that's not really where we want to go in our careers. So we went to mediation and the insurance company asked me if I was okay with them settling it. And I said, it's your money. As long as I don't have to have confidentiality so I can talk about this. And as long as I don't have to admit any wrongdoing, if you guys want to throw money at this guy, I don't care. So that case settled for a million dollars of the insurance company's money. By the way, the guy got a visa. Every one of the people involved in all this got a visa. Every single one, even the criminals got visas. That first guy, they got him a visa with political connections. Wow. Every single one of them got, that's how connected CRLA is to the government. Every single one of these people ended up with legal status. Oh, wow. So anyway, the, the published decision came out and the United Farm Workers Union filed a state bar charge against me, claiming that this lawsuit established that I had engaged in unethical conduct. The state bar investigated that and they have been prosecuting me since, I want to say 2017, 2016, to try to disbar me. And what facts have they, did they ever come to that? Uh, we went to trial in 20, May of 2021, I think it was. We did the, We did a trial, four-day trial in front of a state bar judge um, at which I was exonerated completely of all violations. The, the judge, you know, looked at all the documents from both sides. Uh, I testified at the trial. A bunch of other people testified at the trial. And the judge's ruling was that I was acting legitimately in my role as an attorney and that uh, there was no violation of legal ethics. The prosecutor sought and filed an appeal of that decision. The state bar has its own internal review department that does appeals of those. So he appealed that decision. The oral argument on that was last year in May. And in July of this year, we got a ruling, a 50-page decision. Uh, it was a three-judge panel, 2-1 in my favor that, yes, I didn't do anything wrong. I was exhausted. Was that like a political thing? Like, why'd you lose the one? Um, he was just, I think, outraged at the thought of, you know, oh my God, this poor worker was deported. Actually, it wasn't even, the worst evidence against me was I got really frustrated with this federal agency that oversees the funding. Yeah. Um, and I guess what I would tell people is be careful what you write in emails when you're angry. <laughs> I think that's good advice. <laughs> I can't, it took you so long. I'm surprised I you made that mistake. I well, you may have guessed. I'm kind of, I'm I'm a fiery and confrontive lawyer. I Dude, think. you literally like you are afraid of nothing. It's totally and, weird. It's maybe pathological. So, <laughs> Your lack of fear. <laughs> so well, you know, the other lawyers who do what I do. Everyone always complained about this agency and like how they did this and it's illegal and all this stuff. And I kind of felt like the soldier who jumped out of the trench and I ran up the hill with my gun and I looked around and there's nobody there. <laughs> Yes. Um, everybody ran away from me. At all. So, except my clients, by the way, my clients are wonderful and they're loyal and like you know. At any rate, 
So the, the, the guy who, who thought that the decision should be reversed felt that my explanation was not credible. And what, what everybody he's always focused on who doesn't like this case is I, I was frustrated with this legal services agency inspector general who oversees the funding. Because I'm like giving them on a silver platter these people committing violations. I mean, in one of the cases, they were representing a guy who was living in Mexico, which is in violation of, of the, the, the regulations. And there was a discovery dispute over whether he would have to give his deposition here or in Mexico. And they wrote in their letter that nine months before he had moved to Mexico permanently, like they admitted that they knew they were not yeah. qualified, they were not allowed to represent. Right. Him. So I have their like written confession. Yes, right. And the agency whitewashed it and didn't do anything about it. And he's continuing to make all of these excuses. And I mean, I told we, I had long phone conversations with him. I told him in one phone conversation, I'm like, you're like a sheriff with an empty gun. Like, why, do, why are you even doing it? Like, it's not going anywhere. So I wrote an email to him when I was frustrated and when I was angry, because he started questioning me on legal ethics. And it is illegal for a lawyer to, it's unethical for a lawyer to threaten an opposing party with criminal prosecution right. to gain advantage in a civil dispute. Yeah. And he said, he, he had said to me, aren't you afraid you're going to run afoul of that rule? And so I wow. wrote an email where I said, I've never threatened anybody. Anytime I've gotten a worker deported, their attorneys find out about it when they're already gone. Because I'm thinking about the guy who had tried to shoot my client. And there was one other guy who had actually been legal, had had legal status in the country. He went to prison for selling meth. And they, when he finished his prison sentence, as they do, they revoked his legal status and sent him back to Mexico, and then he returned illegally. And I didn't even find out about his status from ICE. I found out about his status because I found his prison record because he was going to testify in his case, and you just routinely investigate a witness's background for criminal stuff. And then when I found out about that, I contacted ICE to verify that he, he, he had been removed, and they were already looking for him too, and they ended up arresting him. So... Um, what I was saying is I never threatened anybody. I never violated legal ethics. I just told the truth to law enforcement and things happened, you know? Right. And so, but the email is very intemperate and poorly written and it comes <laughs> across very, in a vacuum, it comes across very, very bad. Yes. But, I'm but, really but, surprised because I, I write things like thinking, well, what would a jury think? But like I have a lawyer who's just like, oh, yes, whenever you write, they just say, what would a jury think? You know, just and, and I, I, you know, <laughs> what would a jury think? When I testified at trial, they confronted me with it. And I said, yeah, when I look at it now, it makes me cringe. And I really shouldn't have written that. Right. I wrote it in a moment of anger and frustration. But you have to understand there's a mountain of other emails. Like yes, I wrote emails yeah, to course. ICE where I said, this is what I'm doing. I'm going after these lawyers. Yeah. And Honestly, with the two guys who got arrested, I actually tried to avoid those arrests, right? I told the lawyer, don't bring him to the deposition. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And in the other so, case, I tried yeah. to cancel the appearance that he was coming to. So at any rate, it became, he just said that he didn't like the credibility determination. And then, so the latest thing that's happening now is they have filed a petition for review of that appellate decision with the California Supreme Court. Gosh, geez. And, and we filed an opposition to that. And now we're waiting to hear if the court is going to review it. The court has never taken up in history a, a case of a lawyer who was exonerated, much less reversed one. So I'm optimistic. Wow. And they, haven't even, they haven't even looked at a disciplinary case since 2014. But the best part of this that you'll enjoy on the ethical side of it since you've been to law school is when you file a petition for review in the California Supreme Court, you're required to submit, if you're the filing party, you have to give the court the entire record of the case below. The prosecutor submitted the record. When my attorney looked at the record, and I'm sure this is just a coincidence. There was one thing missing from the record. 
All of the evidence submitted on my behalf, 500 pages of documents that we submitted, isn't there. So my attorney raised that in our answer to the petition. Hey, the record is incomplete. Right. He files a reply to that, doesn't even mention it. He filed a reply this week, and it doesn't even mention that the record is incomplete. Not, you know, what you would normally get in that is, oh, oops, sorry. Right. I made a mistake. Here it is. I mean, is he going to get away with that? Is there, is, are people after you, do you have no sympathy because they know what you did during lockdown also? Is there any, do you think there's any crossover? Like your reputation is this guy's got to go because that could bring down some, you know, judicial malfeasance. I don't know how much of it relates to the lockdown stuff, but I do know that the prosecutor has looked at my Twitter because he brought it, he brought it up during the trial. He said, do you have a Twitter account? I said, yes. And he, you know. Do you still have one? Uh Uh-huh. What is it? Uh, My Twitter handle is 49 Acres of Freedom, which is my ranch up in Oregon. But it's the the at part of it is at AP Romano. It's in my own name. Uh, Oh, okay. Um, So are you doing anything else on the the lockdown front? Vax mandates, hospital, like there's a lot um, of hospital malfeasance going on right now. It's kind of quieted down now. Um, in terms of exemptions. But for a while there, I was helping people get exemptions from mandates for work or for college, uh, which is kind of how Joni and I crossed paths with each other. um, I was helping students get exemptions from VAX mandates. And her her group has been doing some things that they're trying, you know, on on the legal side of things. And I've been kind of giving them some input behind the scenes. I can't do much directly on that, partially because of just capacity here as a small firm, but also because... I'm not licensed in the states where they're doing stuff. Right. So, um, but I've talked to their lawyers about some like class action procedure stuff because we do a lot of that here, um, and I've been trying to help them how I can um, strategically. Um, as of late, the most recent thing I've been doing is we have gotten three monetary settlements for workers for people who were fired for refusing to get vaccinated. Oh, great! In well, in locally? Yeah. Well, all, in California, right. one was in Southern California. California. Uh, or two were in Southern California and one was local. Well, the reason I'm proud of it is that the lady had really nice lady, but she had a health, she was a healthcare worker who worked face to face with the elderly. So that's like the toughest hill to climb in terms yeah. of the perceptions of COVID. Right. Uh, but they fired her for refusing to get vaccinated and we were able to get her a, a monetary settlement through the California Civil Rights Agency. Um, you know, these aren't like. Based on what? Hmm? What was the actual grounds that you won on? Religious discrimination. She filed for religious exemption and they denied it. And what was her, what were the grounds for her request for exemption? Um, what was interesting is that she didn't claim any membership in a church or a formal religion, but she did claim that she believed in God and that she believed that part of our gift from God is our personal bodily autonomy and our freedom of choice. And that being forced to take a vaccine that she didn't feel was appropriate to put in her body that was created by God violated her religious beliefs. And the law is very clear. You don't have to have a formal religious identification or church to be protected by the freedom to practice your religion. Um, So we we negotiated that settlement. I mean, it wasn't something that was litigated. She contacted me. She had filed uh, the civil rights charge and they wanted to go to mediation. And she really was very nervous and wanted help with the mediation. So I told her that I would represent her at the mediation and help her out with that, which I did. And we were able to get the settlement. She was satisfied with that. And none of these are like 
you know, life changing amount of money where people just won the lottery and now they're never going to have to work again. But no, I look but at it as a, yeah. a, a bridge to whatever they're going to do next. And so, and for her, I know it meant a lot to her. I mean, she told me that it meant a lot to her that somebody listened to her because she'd gone to other lawyers and nobody would help her. Oh. And she's like, just the fact that you listened to me and you're willing to help me meant a lot. And it, I think there's some vindication there when you get compensated for that kind of thing. They had tried yeah. to throw pennies at her as like yeah. a severance agreement at the time and she turned it down. And we got her about five times what they had offered her in severance. Is there any precedent value in that kind of thing? Like, uh, you know, they won't try this again. No, it's just a negotiated settlement and they'll right. they'll try it with as many people as don't stand up for it. But again, to me, it just comes back to that, like, I'm going to help people who come to me. And like, what matters to me is that, you know, it made a difference for this lady that like, this is a bridge to whatever the next, she's gotten another job that's not making her get vaccinated. And this gives her some compensation for what happened to her, gives her some feeling of justice. And it was very moving to me. You know, after the mediation, she cried a little bit on the phone with me and was like, you know, no one was listening to me and you listened to me. And like, to me, that stuff is very meaningful when somebody feels like you helped them. You know, it just, it makes a difference. It matters. And, and if people do have problems like that still, either because they are trying to recover for having um, lost, you know, been damaged by getting fired or, and I, I, I'm certain this is not in your actual firm's wheelhouse, but there is definitely medical fraud going on that even if these guys do have some kind of immunity, they, they're lying about, you know, positive COVID tests or consent or who was in charge of medical care in order to get that remdesivir. Talk about moral hazard. Mm -hmm. They make so much money giving people remdesivir. I mean, it's thousands of dollars a dose. So they are highly motivated to call you a COVID positive, even if they don't have a COVID positive. So there's a ton of that. And people have been really injured by that. And I just wonder if you are plugged in at all or have any recommendations to people if they are continuing to deal with issues from that era, um, who maybe it's not even over yet. You know, not everybody lives in Fresno. and you know, what, what should people do? Well, we practice all over the state. I mean, even our, our okay. regular practice, like I have farmers. As oh, far I might north, have some clients for you. <laughs> I have farmers as far north as Mendocino County and as far south as the Arizona border. Um, I've spent the last 20 years like driving around California. Oh, really? With clients. Like I know towns in California that you've never heard of. Of course, because uh, if you do farm guy, that there's, you've got to cover distance for farm. Right. I mean, anywhere where there's agriculture, I go. Right. Um, and, you know, these days it's not hard to do things in different places. So right. I can, I mean, I'm happy to talk to anybody in the state of California about this stuff. And if they, you know, if they want to reach out to me, um, I'm happy to, to consult. I can't promise what I can do to help, but I will listen to you and I'll try to figure out if there's something that I can do. Do you, help. are you taking new clients or are you overwhelmed? No, we're, we're, we're taking people on as we can. Okay. Um, how, so how do people reach you? So my office phone number is area code 559. 432-3000. We have a, uh, a website, which is www.raimondomiller.com. And that's with an I. So it's R-A-I-M-O-N-D-O-M-I-L-L-E-R.com. Correct. And people okay. can call can call the office and they want to say they saw me on uh, Monica right. Perez's podcast and they want to, or they just heard of me, you know, somehow. I mean, the the lady that I helped with the healthcare thing heard me on uh, Buck Johnson's podcast. Oh yes, um, oh yeah. Uh, which I I heard you on. You were really good. Oh, fantastic! Yes, it um, was very easy to be uh, good listening with Buck. 
Yeah, he's great. I drove out to Texas to his house for a Renegade University weekend and got to meet him and hang out with his dogs. It's super like mid-century modern, right? Like yeah, I've heard it's cool a, things it's a really about awesome place. He and his wife are just awesome people. They have adorable dogs. Uh, really, I was really glad I went out there. I see your dog back there. Yeah, he's, uh, he stays with me. He goes everywhere with me. I don't. Is fly. that an American Standard Terrier? No, he's a. Um, I can't uh, see his face. Mostly, mostly Belgian Malinois, but he's a sheltered dog. Okay. He's um, he has that beautiful silky gray that some yeah it's, it's an odd have. color for a Malinois so I don't know what he's yeah. mixed with but uh, I don't but people often look at me funny but I don't fly like I yeah. hate planes I'm Isaac Asimov of, never flew too well I'm not afraid of them crashing yeah but I hate the whole process I feel like the whole airport airplane experience yes. turns really nice people into monsters and it's it's very. Um, it's it really hurts your dignity to have to put up with that. Like it's I do nice. fly a lot, but like it's like a buffet, like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Like I will not go to an all-you-can-eat buffet just because people push you and sneeze on the shrimp. Yeah, so and stuff. I, I drive, I drive yeah. everywhere, and the dog goes with me everywhere. He's traveled all over the country. I mean, in fact, <laughs> when when they closed down the schools, I told my son, "You're not staying home. Get your, they're gonna make you be on a screen. Get your phone and your tablet. Yeah, let's go. We went on a 15 day road trip through 10 so different he, states. So uh, he got he got to. He rose to the status of your dog. Yes. That's good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. After I get off the phone with you, I'm driving down to see him in Southern California, and then I'm driving out to Texas to take his uh, his motor. The my his brother has a motorcycle that I'm delivering. His dad's Dude, don't do it. I come from a long line of truckers and motorcycle riders, and I, I assume that he, your son's very very well trained. But motorcycles still make me nervous. But I did the same thing with my my son. Um, I sent him on the road with my brother during the lockdown thing just to. Get out in the world. Um, it's great for them to see that in other places people were normal. Like we went saw his brother in Texas, and everything was open in Texas, and it was I think it was an eye opener. Um, yeah, and we had a great time. It's just great father son time. And I just this country, if we can let me be patriotic for a minute. This country is such a miraculous and beautiful place, and it's full of the most amazing and wonderful people. Like. You have to see it from the ground and you have to experience it from the ground. And like, I've had like the most incredible experiences just in places I like stopped for the night that I stopped because I found a hotel there, not for any other reason. Um, this past spring, I drove, I went out to Texas for my, my older son's girlfriend was graduating. So I went to her graduation and then I drove to Oregon from, from Texas and I stopped along the way in this little town in the middle of nowhere in Colorado, Lamar, Colorado, just because there was a hotel there and it was on the way. And I went outside with the dog at night um, and took him for a walk. And there was a little park behind the hotel that had like a couple little like reservoir ponds where people could fish and stuff. And you, there was a little trail you could walk around them. And it was a dark night. And I walked out like the, the moon was out, almost a full moon, if not a full moon. And it's like, those are like the moments I think that really bring me, like, I just, I feel like those bring you closer to God. Like you feel, the miracle of this world in these tiny moments that you don't expect that you aren't looking for. I would never go out of my way to see this park. It's not a tourist attraction. You couldn't, but there was, you wouldn't even know about it. Right. This incredibly like powerful, peaceful, beautiful moment that catches you completely by surprise. And like, to me, you know, that's the hand of God reaching out and touching. Dude. I felt that way when I used to go with my father, who was a trucker staying in truck stops 
and pulling in someplace at two in the morning in some truck stop diner that was filled with fluorescent lights and literally guys with like world's best trucker hat mm -hmm. on. And the, you know, the waitresses with the white aprons, like I'm from New York. And to me, and they were had funny accents and I had biscuits and gravy. I'm like, what the mm -hmm. hell is this? Uh, and that to me, like I have that feeling just of like, we're pulling in, you know, you're pulling in, it's dead of night. And then all of a sudden there's like a little tiny city of a truck stop and uh, that to me was a really meaningful experience of this country. That's, and my father was like, look at the island. That's the miracle, that moment right there. You know, the miracle doesn't come with fireworks and fanfare. Right. The miracle finds you in those quiet moments. And, and boy, were they memories for me. And, and that's why I try to tell my kids, like, look out the window, you know, no phones in the kitchen or the car. Like, look out the window. And that's, and that's why I drive everywhere. That's awesome. You're giving me goosebumps, dude. Who knew? Who would have expected <laughs> that from the pit bull himself? Like, I can't, can't believe it. Um, wow, that's super awesome. Well, I feel like we have to do more on, well, next time we'll hit, if there, if there could be a next time, then we can do unions, the poverty industrial complex, a little bit on immigration. I want to, I want to really, I love the insider stuff. I like that. You're uh, not afraid to speak plainly because almost everybody else is like it's it. It makes me nervous. I wore my mask in the little Vons. Like I was not. I was. I just don't like conflicts. I have that same thing. Like I don't want people to hate me. I, I always thought it was because I was a chick and like inherently, you know, fearful of danger. It's probably my New York upbringing. Uh, but no, I think people of all sorts of status and power and gender and age, I feel like very few people have the courage not only to like work quietly and help one person at a time, but to speak publicly. And I think it's very empowering. So I appreciate, I admire your courage and I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And anytime that you want to have me on, I'm happy to do it. Right. That's awesome. So we are, uh, people want to see what your services your law firm offers and if they can you can at least help them in some way even tell them which way to go it's um miller.com r-a-i-m-o-n-d-o miller.com raymondo raymondomiller.com all right thank you so much anthony raymondo and uh, i am monica perez and this has been a dive master interview until next time